Hello and welcome to the Aruka Network podcast with me, Jake Lloyd. In this episode, we're asking the question, what role community can play in helping people overcome trauma? If you want to improve the world, start by making people feel safer. The reason I say that is because trauma recovery is so much about creating safe environments or safe communities. That's the voice of Fiona Dunkley. She's a trauma therapist and counsellor based in London in the UK. Throughout her career, she's worked with victims of sexual violence, with witnesses of terrorist attacks, with traumatised firefighters, and with humanitarian workers returning from conflict zones. And now she's written a new book called Psychosocial Support for Humanitarian Aid Workers. I spoke with Fiona a little while ago to discuss her career and this book, and what she's learned about the role that community and support networks can play in helping reduce the impact of trauma. And we started by discussing sexual violence. Now, it's been a big news story in Hollywood and the humanitarian aid world lately, but it's also a big issue in the communities that our clusters serve as well. So my first question to Fiona was, how do we create a culture where victims feel able to report what has happened to them in the first place? Obviously, through these high-profile cases now in the media, what has come out of that is the Me Too campaign. And actually, this is really interesting because it's creating a virtual support community network, really, where virtual relationships are being formed. And that is empowering people to speak out. In isolation, it's very difficult to speak out. There's something about creating communities where people feel that they are supported and then can come together and speak out and not feel isolated. And it takes a lot of courage. And in the trauma world, we talk about, I think people are aware of the kind of fight, flight, freeze response, but not so much the fawn response. And we're seeing this a lot in these high profile cases where so many people were aware of what was going on, but didn't say anything. And... You know, in a way, that is a trauma response in itself because there's the risk of losing your job or being ostracised from your community. And that in itself is is very traumatic for people. Um, we also sort of see in these cases a lot of splitting or scapegoating is happening. And actually, there's going to be more stories coming forward um, because of the Me Too campaign. And it's really important for us to have those conversations And I think it's just something people find very uncomfortable to talk about. So um, some organisations have kind of distorted, denied or avoided really addressing these issues. So there's a lot of discussion now around reviewing policies and procedures, creating whistleblowing and reporting systems where people feel safe that they can come forward and report and to have access to psychosocial, medical, forensic and legal support. There's a lot of discussion around vetting and recruitment so in the kind of preventative stage and a bigger question really around how does the sector address power imbalances so there's something around shifting the power within the sector utilizing local and local expertise and skills and localizing spending and power which is something that I know Ruka the values align with. So Fiona believes in localizing power and resources and This came up again when we discussed her involvement in responding to the 7-7 bombings. Now, for those of you that don't know, on the 7th of July 2005, suicide bombers conducted a series of attacks on London's public transport system, 
killing 52 people. Yeah, so that was in an interesting time. I joined Transport for London just soon after the 7-7 bombings. And within the first week of arriving, what I noticed actually was that I had jo- joined a traumatised team of counsellors. And they had done an amazing job of supporting the staff and supporting them back into the workplace. But actually, their support had been overlooked. And, you know, and and that's often the case for aid workers, therapists, emergency first responders. Their passion is to support others, but then they can often overlook their self-care for the greater cause. So one of the things that Transport for London did was incorporate and embed a peer support programme into the organisation. And that really started to change the culture and perception around psychosocial support and and to challenge stigma around reaching out for psychosocial support. And so this is training peers in psychological first aid to support their colleagues. And really, in those initial stages of crisis, you don't want specialist counsellors coming in. You need psychological first aid support and practical support. Yeah, and made a really big difference. And this is one of the things we're trying to promote within the humanitarian aid sector is creating peer support programmes. One, it's more sustainable. And two, you know, it's more economical and we can reach more people. We can reach people that are in uh, difficult to reach environments that often don't get the psychosocial support. And this is not the only tragic event to happen in London where Fiona has been around to provide support. Last year, in 2017, a residential tower block in London called Grenfell Tower caught fire and killed 71 people. And Fiona described to me the community response that she witnessed. Yeah, I mean, I was involved in supporting the firefighters, but what the community at Grenfell Tower represented was um, what we would call trauma bonding. So they really came together as a community to support each other. That strong spirit in coming together in the initial stages we're always going to see chaos in an in a crisis but people open their doors rooms were offered I used to live around there and there is a real strong community spirit community centers opened and offered support to families churches offered all faith services there was overwhelming amount of donations from the local community and from local businesses And then the tribute wall kind of represents a real expression of how people were feeling and looking for their loved ones. And there was someone who had written, bonds formed are difficult to break, our community will stand together. So there's a real strong sense of trauma bonding and and supporting one another and that strong human spirit to remain resilient um, through the support of a community. Do you also see the opposite? Can Can trauma drive a wedge through people? Oh, absolutely. And that's what I've mentioned with the trauma splitting. So, um, you know, if, if there isn't the if there isn't the understanding around how people can be impacted by trauma or the uh, good support network, then you can definitely see trauma splitting happening. The risk of that is then that people can get scapegoated or ostracised uh, from community in a way. And, um, you know, in some cultures, some people that have experienced traumas will be ostracized from within their community so um, in my book I talk about a a Somalian lady who came to the UK as a refugee and she uh, informed me she was gang raped and uh, she said I'm the lucky one I I, I'm I'm getting good support but my my brother who was also gang raped just rocks back and forth in a chair and he can't tell anyone he's been raped or he would be shot 
So to have that kind of understanding around trauma and, and trauma support, you know, without it, um, people can be re-traumatized, punished, blamed for what's happened to them. So when tragedy hits a family, a community or an organisation, it can bring people together. But it can also drive people apart. I asked Fiona what simple things can be done to make sure people stick together. For me, I'm more concerned about somebody who's becoming isolated or disconnected. So it's kind of how do we watch out for our colleagues, our peers, our friends, our family members? How do we make sure they stay connected and have some kind of social connection? Because we know that that is one of the strongest resources for recovering from trauma and bringing people together through creativity or music or um, other other ways that kind of really allow people to express their creativities. What is it about creativity that's so helpful? Well, because we know that um, by activating that part of the brain actually starts to help trauma recovery. And we also want to um, encourage our system to relax because we may get into the hyper or hypo alert. So we so lots of grounding techniques, relaxation, breathing, and all of that can be helped through meditation or prayer. You know, being in nature is a fantastic resource. And it is something about that because with trauma, information gets stuck and um and through creativity and through uh, story writing and through uh, narratives within community, we can help uh, people recover from trauma. That's really interesting. So so sort of storytelling as well can be a helpful um, way of processing these these things. Well, absolutely, because, um, you know, and often that's what a psychological first aid or group debriefing is trying to offer when for teams of people that have been through a crisis response they're helping the 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 the, the team or the group of people come to a narrative uh, and try to make a meaning out of what's happened to them and so whether that's done through a community or a creative project you know or or even art and bringing those images together to create a story. I mean, one therapist who does some excellent trauma work globally, he uses picture cards. And so he helps people pick out these picture cards and create a narrative of what's happened to them and then come to a meaning, a new meaning, a new perspective from their experiences. Did you use any of these kinds of tools of nature or storytelling or art with Transport for London? I have worked with clients who um, have brought images in and we've even created like an art gallery in the counselling room and hung all these pictures up and each picture represents a different stage in their recovery. And I mean, I love working in that way because my background is advertising, as I mentioned to, to you at the beginning. You know, I've had clients who bring pieces of music in and they play pieces of music and talk through those. In my book, I talk about Kat Carter um, did a TED talk and she works for Save the Children and she talks about having suffered vicarious trauma. But she talks about some work that was done with a young child. Uh, she'd lost all her family in this war zone and they used balloons to help her because she became mute after that experience. And blowing in the balloons was her way of releasing her feelings. And then she had the power over what she chose to do with those balloons. And I've actually used that in counselling sessions with clients to, of ways of releasing difficult emotion. And then you can have fun with it as well. So (laughs) 
I had one client who um, would fill the balloon with water and then drop it from uh, a, a story quite high up in a building. <laughs> and that was her way of, of really releasing a lot of very uncomfortable emotion. <laughs> Not on top of people's heads or anything. <laughs> it's amazing how something just that's kind of purely symbolic can can be so powerful though isn't it something that's not actually like you know their thoughts aren't actually within that balloon but the the symbolism yes. of it can have an impact well and we use symbolism a lot actually in trauma uh, work um and metaphor works really well um you know i work with visualization and sometimes i'll ask people to just focus on you know reconnecting to their body what do they feel within their body where's the discomfort, then describe it to me as a shape, a colour, a texture. And just going through something like an exercise like that, it's quite amazing what people will come up with and how they start to shift something that they're holding within their body and releasing it, because we often talk about trauma being held in the body. And it can be very powerful. And Fiona then had a special word to say about why it's important that leaders look after themselves. When I'm working with perhaps CEOs or senior management, I kind of say, well, you need to role model good self-care to support your staff. And often if they see it that way, it gives them more permission to take care of themselves because they think they're doing it for to support others. <laughs> so actually, that's something I keep in mind as well, that I want to be role modeling good self-care. Otherwise, I'm not practicing what I'm I'm preaching. And we know that stress and trauma and burnout have a, cute, uh, have a ripple effect down through an organisation. So it's really important that people in leadership roles prioritise their self-care. We're nearing the end of this podcast, but before we go, it is worth mentioning that Fiona also spent a day of her honeymoon doing a trauma training course with our cluster in Myanmar. So she also told me about her experience there. You know, I was there to inform around trauma and, and trauma responses, and I was learning about the culture and, and different practices. And um, and people travelled from far and wide, and I think we had 10 different organisations represented. And they learned a lot just from listening to each other's stories and experiences, and then also recognising, again, the, the cultural resiliences. So prayer, faith, meditation, being in nature, real strong family support networks. And and then some people spoke about, I think one woman spoke about karma breaking the chain of trauma because her belief was that if something happens, it's because of something you've done in the past or your ancestors have done. And therefore, there's no need for revenge. At the same time, I remember another a gentleman said that he was suffered uh, torture and he felt he couldn't speak out because of karma because he felt it would bring shame to his family. And one participant spoke about how perpetrators are often traumatised and he works with child soldiers and, um, you know, he said they, that the people he was working with were desperate to break that chain of destruction um, and through his organisation, helping them to have the, sh- the tools or to be shown another way or a way out. And also another participant was talking about um, training polit- ex-political prisoners in counselling skills and then offering that to uh, other political prisoners. So in a way, this is a really good example of post-traumatic growth where 
we help those to recover from trauma and they go on to use their experiences to help others. And then just finally, Fiona finished with this. And I was going to end on a quote, actually. If you want to improve the world, start by making people feel safer. And that's by Porges. Um, but I kind of the reason I say that is because trauma recovery is so much about creating safe environments or safe uh, communities. And I believe that kind of aid workers, the carers of our world, Aruka clusters, they all create a safe space that enables a deep human connection. And I strongly believe healing communities and countries suffering from trauma will lead to more cohesive and inclusive and peaceful world. Um, and actually for true trauma recovery to take place, we need the support of trauma-informed families, communities and organisations. So that was Fiona Dunkley, a trauma expert and a counsellor. And her book, Psychosocial Support for Humanitarian Aid Workers, is out now. So that's it for this episode. If you have any feedback or comments, then I'd love to hear from you. You can make those comments on the SoundCloud page or you can email me directly, jake at arukanetwork.org. And that's about it for this month. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from Fiona. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, bye for now. Bye.